Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. The passage is a little bit shorter this week than normal, and I'll explain in a little while the purpose behind that. I will be reading verses 16 through 19. If you remember last week, Abraham and Sarah were visited by three men, one of whom was the Lord and two others were angels. That's the context behind the beginning of this chapter, or verse 16 here. Verse 16, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Father, I pray that your word would go forth with power and with grace, Lord, by your spirit. I pray that you would grant me a humble heart, Lord, again, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are indeed continuing our exposition of Genesis here, but some of you might be a little surprised and perhaps may end up a little put out by how I've chosen to handle this section today. We will absolutely plan to continue next week through the last half of chapter 18 and to discuss Abraham's prayers for the righteous who were living among the wicked city of Sodom. But there's a statement made in verse 19 that touches on an incredibly timely topic for our young church. And I have provided you this week with your bulletin a little bit more detailed outline than I typically do. While I'm absolutely committed to the premise of expository preaching, I won't go so far as to say there's never a need to cover a particular topic within a sermon during a Lord's Day worship service. And part of the need for this in our current church setting arises from the nature of our church simply being only about a year old. And because we don't meet multiple times per week and we don't yet have an independent teaching time outside of the Lord's Day worship service, we don't really have a good built-in venue for handling this type of topic. That challenge is increased by the fact that the website we've been using during our entire existence up to this point has not allowed us to convey as much information about our church as we would have liked to from the beginning. We do have a new website under construction, and that is coming together, but it's taking more time than I would have liked, both because of time constraints on my part and also on the part of those who are helping us as volunteers. All that is to say, this is a topic I would have liked to have conveyed to you more thoroughly before many of you have even considered starting coming, coming here. But because we've been blessed by the presence of so many families recently, it's a topic we must at least begin to address before going any further, not just for the sake of the church, but especially so that you know what type of church we're intending to be. One way our current website does describe us as a church is family integrated. But what all that entails has not necessarily been fleshed out for many of you. And it needs to be, which is what I intend to begin doing through this message. Uh, I'm quite sure we'll need to have further conversations about what all this means because time and depth of conversation are important for this topic. I may have inadvertently given some of you the impression that nearly everything we do here is just for the sake of simplicity or, to put it another way, lack of manpower. 
And in many cases, that's a true statement. I have intentionally kept many of our processes simple at Grace Baptist because put whatever number you want on it, anywhere between 75 and 90% of what gets done here, I'm doing it, for the moment at least. And I can only do so much. So I have intentionally kept many things simple for that reason. But it's possible that some of you have heard me say that and then have assumed that the reason we don't have a nursery downstairs is simply for lack of manpower. And I want to lay out for you a much clearer reason for why we've purposed to be a family-integrated church and what that means for us all. In verse 19 of this chapter, God says that he has chosen Abraham, I'm quoting now, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. What's God saying here? This is one of the first commands we see in the Bible of an explicit expectation by God that those who follow the Lord should command their children to do the same. We see more explicit instructions come later. For example, one of the most explicit presentations of this command is found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. And I'll read some of this again for you, even though Chris has just read it for us. Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, It could be that some of you are already starting to tune out this message. Perhaps you're thinking, I don't have any children yet. Well, there may be a time someday when you may have children, and so it's best you learn this beforehand rather than waiting until you do. Others of you have never had children, and then for some others of you, it's been so long since you had children living in the home that you might just think this doesn't apply to you anymore. But let me explain why this message is relevant for everyone in the church. If this message is going to describe a central aspect of what we intend to be as a church family, which is to say family integrated, then the entire character of the church is affected. And if the entire character of the church is affected, that has an impact on how everyone here is going to feel about and experience the nature of our worship services and our relationships in the church. So please don't tune this out just because you don't have small children in the home right now. Uh, That Deuteronomy passage talks about the importance of teaching the commands of God at all times. Teach them diligently to your children as you sit in your house, as you're outside walking around, at night when you go to bed, and in the morning when you get up. The intent of this command here is that there should never be a moment when you're not conceiving the way or the ways you train your children as centered on the Lord. But for many of you right now, your children are so young, you might think, my kids aren't old enough yet to understand any of that. How could I possibly teach the commands of God to a child who is three years old or two years old or even younger than that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because God's word has more to say on the subject in a very specific fashion. And I want you to know 
before we go into this material, that this sermon is not intended to be some passive-aggressive way of singling out any particular family or children in the church. I can't stand that kind of communication. And I actually have had personal discussions on this topic with some of the families in the church already. Again, I want to be upfront about who we are intending to be as a church because I don't believe we've really had the right venue to do that yet. And I don't think we should wait any longer. So in what way does God's word teach us about how to help our very young children understand the commands of God? Let me take you first to Exodus 20, verse 12, what many of you will recognize as something we often call the fifth commandment. Here's Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Friends, if there is one foundational thing God wants you to do to teach your children the ways of God, you absolutely must start training them to obey you as parents. This is the one thing you can do from the very earliest ages to help them see the importance of obeying and honoring God. It's to obey and honor you as their parents. Now, I've used the word obey when Exodus 20 verse 12 says honor. But look also with me at what the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. In Ephesians 6, which again Jason read for us earlier, excuse me, Chris read for us earlier, we see this in verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Paul quotes the fifth commandment, but he also tells children not to just honor their parents, but to obey them as well. And if there's any confusion, he also says very much the same thing in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Look at the words being used in these passages. Honor, obey, and look at the conclusions as well. In Ephesians, the conclusion is that this command comes with a promise, a blessing that things may go well with you. And the conclusion in Colossians 3, for this pleases the Lord. The obedience of children to their parents pleases the Lord. You know what that means, though, don't you? When children disobey their parents, that displeases the Lord. In fact, in the Mosaic Law, there was actually provision for consistently stubborn, unruly, and disobedient children to be stoned to death. Now, if you're to read that passage carefully, it occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 21, you'll see that that instruction was written about older children who actually had the capability of being gluttons and drunkards. So at the time, it wasn't really aimed at the very youngest. And we're not under the Mosaic law as a covenant at this point anyway. But you can see here that God takes children's obedience seriously. This is a critical thing. In fact, this may be the single most important thing that you, as a parent of young children, can do to train them to obey you for the Lord's sake. In the meanwhile, if you do that for the sake of the Lord, you will likely find that your children will be blessed for it by God. And you will find your home and family to be much more peaceful institutions than if you don't. Now, some of you probably have a million thoughts going through your head right now, and I know that I won't be able to answer every possible question right now, 
this is why one thing I've done on your bulletin is to give you a link in the outline to an organization called Church and Family Life. It used to go by the name of the National Center for Family Integrated Churches. And this organization has a wealth of information to assist parents in this awesome responsibility of training and raising your children. But especially at this point in time, for most of you, training them to obey you and to learn how to attend worship services with you. I've put this link uh, in that outline, as well as a specific link on their page that I think is a great place to start, a specific message that's given. But the two most important points I want to leave with you for today are these. And this first one I'm repeating a little bit. The single most important role you have as parents of young children is to righteously train them to obey you. Because it's in learning to obey you that they learn to obey the Lord. And the second point is this. The church is here to assist you in doing that, but not to do it for you. We're here to assist you in doing that, but not to do it for you. And one of the best barometers for assessing the level of obedience of children to their parents is whether they can, by and large, sit still and quietly in the church service with you and your family. There's more behind that expectation, but bear with me for a minute. Before I get too far, I want to try to speak to some of the concerns that may already be running through your mind. First, let me say that I understand there are some children with such severe developmental issues that much of what I'm about to say may not apply, or at least may not apply in exactly the same way. But even in that case, in one of the links I've shared with you on that outline from Church and Family Life, the speaker talks about Helen Keller. I hope you remember who Helen Keller was. She was a girl who was born in 1880 and lived all the way through 1968. When she was very young, less than two years old, she contracted some sort of illness that left her deaf, blind, and mute. Deaf, blind, and mute at less than two years old. And for the next few years, she became a complete terror because it was thought she was completely untrainable. How could anyone communicate with her? But when she was seven years old, Helen's parents brought in an instructor named Ann Sullivan. She was a 20-year-old woman to see if she could help Helen. And I won't tell you the entire story, but the first thing Ann taught Helen was self-restraint. Ann Sullivan took this wild, uncontrollable child, and she taught her to regulate herself so that she could simply calm down enough for them to figure out a way that they could communicate with with each other, which was the next problem that they were able to solve. And Helen Keller called that day, the day she learned that first valuable lesson of self-regulation, my soul's birthday. Now, I don't know whether Helen, Helen, Helen Keller was a Christian or not, but she considered that moment in her life a rebirth of her life. So if Helen Keller could learn this, chances are your children can as well. Now, some of you parents may have grown up in households where the discipline was so heavy-handed or so out of control that it could legitimately and biblically be described as abusive. And so perhaps an understandable reaction you might have in parenting has been to veer too far in the other direction, the direction of being too permissive with your children, in order that they don't have to endure the kind of abuse that you may have endured. 
And my desire for you, if that's the case, is to assist you in learning to see a clear difference between a biblical pattern of discipline and an abusive one. And even there we have to be careful because the ways our society has defined as abusive are often in direct contradiction to God's word. So it's important for us to be clear about what a biblical pattern is and what it isn't. It's very possible, in fact, it's, in fact, it's very easy if you're not careful to take corporal punishment into a truly abusive category. But that doesn't mean that corporal punishment, properly administered in patience and in love, is itself abusive. And the biblical testimony is clear that some measure of corporal punishment is considered to be God's model for training and disciplining children. We probably won't have time today to discuss those passages in detail, but we certainly can and should discuss them at another point. At the very least, we'd want to consider the following passages, and these are in your outline. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Proverbs 23, verses 13 to 14. And Proverbs 29, verse 17. But speaking of society, some of you may have simply imbibed so much of the way our society has drifted from what used to be more or less a biblical understanding of disciplining children that you simply don't realize how far from that pattern our society has drifted and how far along with society you may have drifted. I'll give a brief example to this one. The concept of child-proofing a home came to rise during the time I was growing up. Before that, our society and and many others didn't child-proof their homes, they home-proofed their children. That is, they trained their young children, for example, not to touch things they're not supposed to touch. And this occurred for thousands of years. Now, all of a sudden, our society has decided that we must child-proof our homes And what has been one of the results of that? Well, I will contend that one of the results is that we've gotten a generation or more of children who, as a generalization, once they've grown up physically, still consistently need to have their environment altered to accommodate them. They've never learned the simple discipline of self-regulation, and self-regulation is everything in that regard. What does it mean when a child has chosen not to touch an object they're not supposed to touch? It means that child has learned self-regulation. What does it mean when an adult chooses not to take something that doesn't belong to them, even given a clear opportunity? It means the self-regulation they learned as a child has continued and developed into self-regulation as an adult. What does it mean that a child is able to generally, and I'm not saying at every single moment, but generally sit still and be more or less quiet and doesn't usually frequently disrupt a worship service? It means that child has learned self-regulation. But how does a child learn this if every environment they're ever put in is so tailored to their inability to self-regulate that nothing they could do in that environment is ever wrong? if they're always allowed to make all the noise they want whenever they want, if they're always allowed to touch whatever is within their reach, how will they ever learn self-regulation? Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. But it will be very, very difficult, far more difficult than it would have been to learn when they are very young and if they were trained. If so, for example, if they're always removed from the church service, 
How and when will they learn to properly participate rather than disrupt a worship service? Again, it won't be impossible, but it will be much, much more difficult, especially the older and older they get. And let me tell you, what's difficult with the first child may become harder and harder and harder the more children you have, because as you parents well know, the more of them than there are of you, the more difficult it is to train them to obey and discipline them when they need it. Uh, Again, some of you may already be feeling completely overwhelmed in hearing this. I get it. I was once a parent of small children myself, And for several of the most critical years in my children's lives, I did that as a single father. I get it. This is not easy. And what makes it even harder is that your children's level of obedience to you is just right out in the open for everybody to see. It's completely exposed. There's no hiding it. And in a church like ours, where our stated goal and desire is for your families to participate in worship together, there's really no hiding it. There's no nursery to send your kids to so that you don't have to have everyone witness the challenges you're having in raising your family. This is why this message is for non-parents also, or for those who no longer have young kids in the home. Because the wider church culture, in our wider evangelical church culture, I'd say, they've tended to make Sunday worship this uber-personal, hyper-spiritual experience where many adults feel it's their right never to be inconvenienced in any way by the squirming and the light interruptions of children that may simply need a moment to be disciplined and to calm down and then be brought back. Our worshiping the Lord corporately is still a part of real life. And real life has messiness to it. And some of that messiness includes the reality that sometimes a child might have a momentary meltdown or period of rebellion, and they may need to be briefly removed from the service and then brought back. And that will affect you also, those of you who are not training young children yourselves right now. Well, those verses I read earlier in Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians, do you remember how they began? Ephesians 6, one and Colossians 3.20, they each begin directly with Paul addressing children, directly addressing children. If you realize what that means, that means the children were present in the worship service to hear his direct address. Now, there's so much more to say about this topic. I know I'm only scratching the surface. As I said earlier, this is the most single, the single most important thing you can do as a parent. What you're doing is actually training and disciplining the rebellion out of your children. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that physical discipline alone will ever save a child's soul. No, only the gospel can do that. But it's still clear from the fifth commandment and from Paul's admonitions in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 that the specific trait God wants parents to train out of their children is an ingrown attitude of rebellion. We're not just talking about making sure their outward behavior is acceptable in public. We don't want to raise little Pharisees that outwardly, the way Jesus put it, are whitewashed walls and inwardly are filled with dead men's bones. But we do want to train out of them that inner heart of rebellion because it's that very attitude of rebellion that itself is resistant to the gospel message. So if you train your children early to, generally speaking, have an attitude of obedience toward you rather than an attitude of rebellion, 
How much more receptive does that make them to the instruction you're supposed to be diligently teaching them as they lay down and as they rise up and as you're in the house and as you go about your way? If you've patiently and consistently trained the rebellious attitude out of them, you're making their heart and mind more fertile ground, more likely to be receptive to the gospel instruction, rather than just hoping and praying God will miraculously make them receptive to the gospel, despite you not doing your part. For some of you, at this stage of life you're in right now, perhaps with multiple very little ones, you're just exhausted. I get it. Again, I have been there. And I do have a few comments for you if you're in that situation. First, that time of life does eventually pass. It's simply a part of what raising young children is like. You won't be doing that forever. That time of life will pass. Secondly, though, please internalize this. That time passes a lot more peaceably if you train your children well. That's another reason it's so important because you can truly exhaust yourselves and training and discipline can get out of hand in a bad way when you are exhausted. That's part of why Paul's exhortation to children in Ephesians 6 is followed immediately by an exhortation to fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers have a clear biblical role in this. And it's worth pondering the question, How might I be provoking my children to anger? How might I do that? Well, for starters, you can do that by being too heavy-handed. That's likely to provoke your children to anger. You can also provoke your children to anger by only disciplining them when you are angry and thus doing it in a heavy-handed manner or in an inconsistent manner. You might also provoke them to anger by leaving the job entirely to your wife. You have a clear role in this, fathers. But inconsistency can come in other ways, too. You could even provoke them to anger by allowing a clear inconsistency between your approach to discipline and your wife's approach. Children need to be trained consistently because, just as you all know from your own sin nature, Children can learn very easily and very quickly how to manipulate a mom and dad when they want, if mom and dad let them do this. Parents, if you are not on the same page in your marriage about this, my strong recommendation and prayer for you is that you begin talking and praying in earnest about how to get on the same page. And that goes both ways. If one parent, no matter which, is much more strict and the other is much more lenient, Children can learn at an extremely early age that they can get away with disobedience when the stricter one is not around. Friends, this is not godly training and discipline. And that's part of why the church is here and why we're addressing this issue head on. We want to help you learn how to do this single most important job in your lives for your sakes, for your children's sakes. Because as we saw earlier, the obedience of children to their parents pleases the Lord. In Genesis 18, 19, we saw that God's command to Abraham to command his children after him to keep the way of the Lord had a purpose. And that purpose was so that God might bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Well, God's command to you, parents, 
is there to facilitate the promises of God being fulfilled in your children's lives as well. So they grow up knowing how to be properly obedient to proper authorities. And, and here's the most important reason, so that they grow up with receptive hearts, fertile ground, with the go- fertile ground for the gospel message, so that they too at some point, perhaps very young, perhaps later on, would become adopted into the family of God as co-heirs with Jesus Christ themselves. You're not just training and raising children. You are training and raising, by God's grace and with God's help, potential brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so I want to end by just laying out a few expectations in our worship services and for here in the sanctuary. And then I hope to top it off with an anecdote as an illustration to provide you some hope. Our expectation is, if you're not already doing this, that you begin training your children at home how to be quiet and sit still and be attentive when it's time to do so. I'm not saying every single moment of every day, but when it's time to be still and quiet and attentive, you're training them to do so. And to train them that the worship service is one of those places and times in which they're expected to be quiet and sit still and attentive. The training you do at home is what will lead to their obedience or not when you're outside the home. If your child is being consistently noisy or otherwise disruptive, we expect that you will address it, and if need be, that you remove them from the service temporarily to address it in a manner that will help them to receive your instruction, and then to come back with them into the worship service. For some instances, and for some children, this may take longer than for others, but if you always remove them permanently, if you always remove them permanently when they act up, guess what you're training them to do? You're training them to act up so that they don't have to stay in the worship service. Actually, it's reasonable to say that you're the one being trained by them. Trained by them to give them what they want when they act up. Additionally, when we're in the sanctuary after the worship service is over, we ask that you help your children understand that the platform up here is off limits, the soundboard area in the back is off limits, and the area over by the musical instrument equipment is off limits. And one more expectation we have, please no running in the sanctuary. That's for two reasons. To help us all maintain an air of reverence for the place of worship, I'm not saying that we think this is like what Moses said, you know, take your sandals off, this is holy ground. But there should be some air of reverence for the place of worship. The second reason is that it's very easy for children in their running around to run into an unsteady adult causing them injury. We do have several elderly people in our congregation, and so we want the children to learn that running around in the sanctuary can also pose dangers to others. There is an entire downstairs area where after the service they can do a bit more running around. And I do know that we have six months or more of winter up here where opportunities to get outside and run around are few and far between. And so this big indoor space is a huge temptation. But let's please limit the running to downstairs. Finally, we ask you to train your children not to touch things that are not meant to be touched by them. The best example I can give you downstairs is the whiteboard markers that our host church leaves out. We actually do have our own whiteboard markers locked away, and we might ask that for a time the host church uh, at least temporarily put theirs out of reach because I know how much of a temptation those are as well. 
But what happens when kids use those to draw is inevitably the markers get ruined or the caps get left off and the markers dry up and even the board itself may be ruined. And that is not being respectful of our host church's resources, nor would it be respectful if they were our resources. I should say, however, that the downstairs is available for our use. And if you absolutely need to take your child down there during most or even all of a service, we're not going to stop you. We're even looking into some simple technology that may allow us to pipe the audio of the service and the sermon downstairs. And if you even want to work out a rotation among some of the parents, we're not going to stop you from doing that either. But it would be an agreement you make among yourselves, not as an official church provision. Because we, again, want to encourage you that we believe the growth and maturity of your children and your families are best served by getting your children as quickly as possible to a point where everyone is able to attend the worship service together. Again, I know this message will raise a lot of questions. Let's talk about them. If you'd like to talk right afterward today, let's talk. If you'd prefer to call or email with questions, we can do that. If you'd like to get together as a family and talk, we can do that as well. Ideally, as we progress as a church, We would like to create a Sunday school time that would also be family integrated in which the families, children, and adults are learning and maybe even memorizing these catechism questions and answers and discussing both the simple and the deep truths of God from the catechism we've been learning in our services. We're not there yet, but that's what we're shooting for. And that kind of setting is ideal for helping families to train their children and to learn what is expected of them in the church. One of our sister churches in Big Lake, Minnesota, does something very much like that. They call it FIT, Families in Training. That's very much what we'd like to get to. Now, I also encourage you heartily to sit down as a family or at least as a couple this week and listen to the message on the Church and Family Life website that I've provided in your outline. And so I did promise you at the end an anecdote that I hope will be a helpful illustration of what I've spoken about today. About 13 years ago, I had the opportunity to be in Atlanta, and I was helping in a specific way at a church service, and this church was a culturally Romanian church, and the service, it was filled, it was, it was conducted in the Romanian language, and there were probably two to 250 people there, including very young children, and what just utterly astounded me was that the whole congregation was silent and receptive. Even the youngest kids, but was even uh, a cooler thing, was that the young kids, you'd see them getting up and moving around in the sanctuary and like sitting with another family for a little while. And then they'd get up, they'd move around, sit with another family for a little while. And then after a few minutes, they were back with their parents. And the whole church, this was happening all over the church. It wasn't just like one little group of families. It was unbelievable to me. I'd never seen anything like it. Now, granted, it takes an entire community of having that expectation and having that, it was a cultural expectation of that's what was uh, both expected of their children and acceptable in the church. Uh, But it's, it was a, it was a reality. They did it. They all did it together. There's even t- there's opportunities if, if you're feeling overwhelmed with a child, some of the other adults in the church can sit with them for a time. We would love to be a help in that manner. 
with you. And we would love the church to get to the point where the families know each other so well, the children know each other so well, and the adults and children know each other so well that that's possible. So that is my anecdotal encouragement to you. Uh, There's much more beyond, but let's pray. Let's have our conversations as well as the Lord provides opportunity. Father, we know that this is a hard subject. It's the hardest thing we do in our lives in many ways because it's, it's not something we can just give up on. It's not a task that we can say, okay, I can't do this anymore. And so, Lord, you've given us the command, and when you give us commands, in some fashion, you're going, we know we're, that you're going to enable us to be able to do it somehow. Not perfectly, We have our weaknesses, we have our sin nature that we're still struggling against, but by your Spirit, Lord, and by the community of the Spirit in the church, we know that you can draw us together. We know that you can give parents the tools and the skills and the agreement they need in their homes to help their children in this manner, because we want these children's hearts and minds to be fertile ground for your gospel. We want them to hear not just the simple truths of how important it is to obey their parents, but we want them to grow up understanding how much you as their heavenly father love them and how much you as their heavenly father want them and expect them to obey you. That's what we want to see, Lord. We want to raise up brothers and sisters in Christ, co-heirs with Christ, And so we pray that you would enable us to do so. We pray that you would take all of our different weaknesses, all of our different challenges, all of our different strengths, and help us as a community to do this according to your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we have an opportunity to celebrate this Lord's Supper. And since we're talking about kids some, maybe some of your kids have asked you, why can't I participate? Why can't I have a bite of, to eat or drink with you all? And so maybe this is a brief opportunity for me to explain that. This is something that we do, that, that Christ has commanded his people to do as a remembrance of his death and resurrection on our behalf. And also a means of grace. One of the things that we do together to experience the grace of God in a way because we're obeying what he's commanded. And it's something we do to remember and to proclaim to each other and to ourselves and to the world that he's coming again, as he said. And now I, I said that's for, Jesus said that's for his people. And what we teach here at Grace Baptist is that the Lord's Supper is for those who have committed to following Christ. They've professed faith in Christ. And ideally, they've made that profession public by being baptized on their profession. And so that's why we limit communion, although we don't, quote, fence the table, we encourage the parents to do so. But we, lo- we prefer to limit the communion to those who have been uh, baptized upon their profession of faith. That's another subject we can talk about in more depth if you'd like to at another time. But let us partake together now 